Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So if you'd open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 20, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, it means so much to us to realize that the book that we hold in our hand was handcrafted by God. You chose every word, Lord, and every phrase, and you chose it with a purpose, and and now, Lord, you want to speak it to our hearts this morning. So we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, open our hearts, cause us to realize this is not just another book, this is God's words that proceed out of his mouth to us, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, and Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said unto him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And even she herself said, she is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that is thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them, these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us, and what have we offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they'll slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So in our last study, we came to know this new person, very important person in the Bible, Abimelech. And in this chapter, what's happening with us is that we're being privileged to be brought into this intimate, heart-to-heart conversation between God and Abimelech. And in verse 2, we saw that God is very careful to emphasize to us the magnitude of the sin of Abraham and how God chose to identify uh, Sarah as in verse 2 where it says, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, that she is my sister, and Abimelech sent and took her. So as far as God was concerned, this was not just another woman for Abraham endangering her and calling her her sister. This was his wife. And because of that, Abraham caused Abimelech to sin. In other words, Abraham was the cause 
of Abimelech's sin. And Abimelech wasn't happy about that at all. And so we see in verse 9 where it says he calls to Abraham and he protests to him, he charges him, he, he says to him, what have you done unto us? And what have we offended you? What was the reason that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? And you've done deeds that ought not to have been done. And Abimelech was right. He was dead on right when he blamed Abraham because it was just as Abimelech had said to Abraham, Abraham, you brought on us a great sin. It's your fault, Abraham. And so Abraham had done this thing, as Abimelech put it, deeds that ought not to be done. And this was not the first time, as we've seen, that Abraham had done this. Abraham did this to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, Abraham told the same lie to Pharaoh as he told to Abimelech as his sister. And Pharaoh, like Abimelech, gave the same protest to Abraham because he'd wronged him. And that we saw back in Genesis 12, 8, where Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? So it's the second time that poor Abraham has to hear these searing words, what is this that you have done unto me? And they're hard words for poor Abraham to hear. Why? Because they're hard words, because in both cases, Abraham has nothing to say. He has no defense. This flimsy defense that he comes up with his sister, he would have been better just to not have said anything. But anyway, he's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And it's a really bad position that Abraham finds himself in. When we find ourselves in that position also, where we sin and we cause others to sin also, as he did, Paul looked at his life and he said about himself, I never want to be in that position in my life. I never want to be in Abraham's position in Genesis 20 and Genesis 12. And so what happened is that when Paul was called in this council and there was his accusers that wanted his death, there was Felix who had the power to one swipe of the hand, he becomes beheaded like John the Baptist and Herod. And what happens is that Paul now stands up and he speaks. And we see this in Acts 24, 15 through 16, where he says this. This is what Paul says when he's really in front of what is really going to determine whether he's going to live or die. And he says, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also lie, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. See, from these two verses, what we can see here in Acts 24 is that Paul is specifically thinking about his death. I mean, here he is. They want him dead. The accusers want him dead. Felix is going to decide whether he lives or death. So his life passes in front of him, so to speak. And, he, and what he brings up first, he talks about a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And so this shows what's in Paul's mind. He's thinking about dying. He's thinking there's a very real possibility this is going to be his last time in court, and he's going to die. And so he's thinking about that, and so he's very aware that his death is in front of him. He's very aware this may be perhaps his last words. And so looking at that very real possibility, what comes to his mind? That there is, after death, this resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And then he goes on to speak with that in mind and realizing that there's going to be a judgment after death. 
He realizes that, and then he says, you know, in light of that, I have put my life to a constant effort, a never-ending exercise, and a struggle that I won't go in the inclination of my heart. My heart wants to go in this way, but I won't. I exercise myself like he's at a constant 24-hour gym, <laughs> Paul is, you know. I constantly exercise myself. I pull myself back so that I can have what he calls a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. See, he cares about his conscience. He's, he's thinking about his conscience. You know, Job had this same uh, endeavor. In Job 27.5, he wrote like this, my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. That's the same thing. That's the same thing that Paul is saying. I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. And Job says, my righteousness, I'm going to hold on to it. I won't let it go. I'm determined that my, my heart, he talks about, is not going to accuse me. My heart is not going to reproach me as long as I live. Now, what is this that Paul was talking about? In Romans 2.15, we have a description of the conscience. In that description, it's, it describes something very interesting where it says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. So this verse tells us three things. First, it tells us what the conscience is. And second, it tells us what the conscience does. And third, it tells us how the conscience works. Now, first of all, what is the conscience? The conscience is described here as the work of the law written in their hearts. The work of the law written in their hearts. So the conscience is the law of God that's written in our hearts, just like what it says about the commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 31, 18. It says, and he, God, and he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. See, that was how the commandments were characterized. They were written with the finger of God. And Moses was so impressed with this. He was so impressed with the fact that what he was carrying was written with the finger of God that when he was giving one of those great rehearsings in the book of rehearsings, which is the book of Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy 9.10, he says, and the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God, and on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So Moses, he just couldn't get over it. He just was so impressed with the fact that what he was holding in his hands were tables that were written with the finger of God. And that was something. If you stopped Moses, he's walking, he's got tables, you stopped Moses, he says, Moses, what you got there? He says, I got stones which are written with the finger of God. And that's what he would have said, because that's what impressed him most about it. That was the big point for him. And the stone, I said, I've got something that was written with the finger of God. I don't think I knew this verse, but anyway, there were two hospitals in Los Angeles. You've all heard of Cedar sinai Well, originally it was Mount Sinai Hospital and Cedars of Lebanon. My dad used to practice at both of them, and so I used to get dragged along to these two hospitals. Mount Sinai was in Beverly Hills, and Cedars of Lebanon was in another place. But anyway, so we go to Mount Sinai Hospital, and down there at the bottom, as you come in, Mount Sinai Hospital, and 
LA, they had the Ten Commandments, you know, and they were there. And I used to put my finger in them as a little kid and said, this is God's finger. For, you know. <laughs> anyway, those weren't written with the finger of God, but Moses were, the table of stone. It was all about for him, written with the finger of God. And if you were Moses, and if you were Moses, and you were walking down with those tables of stone, wouldn't you feel the same way? Wouldn't you feel the same way? I've got something here that's written with the finger of God. This is really something. You know, I didn't sit in a class and take notes about this. I've got this right here. It's written with the finger of God. And we would treasure that. Like Moses, we treasure that. And it was written with the finger of God. And we'd honor it. We'd say this, I've got something written with the finger of God. And the amazing thing is, is that what this verse teaches us in Romans 2 is that you and I have this table within us that was written with the finger of God. And that's exactly what's meant in Romans 2.15 when it says, the work of the law written in their hearts. Who wrote it? The finger of God. God wrote that. It's the work of God. That's what our conscience is. It's the work of the law written in their hearts. Now, the next thing, what does the conscience do? Well, that reverse in Romans 2.15 tells us that the conscience is described as what is doing is bearing witness. It's a very court-like term, very legal term. As I get a court, and the conscience is there, and it's swearing to tell the total truth and nothing but the truth, and it is telling the truth, and it's constant telling the truth, and he doesn't leave the witness stand, this conscience, and he's always speaking, and he's a referee as he speaks, and he's, his work is described in Romans 2.15 as he keeps speaking. What is he saying? He's saying, I accuse that, I excuse that. I excuse that, I accuse that. He's constantly giving his calls, and he's saying, this is right, this is not right. And he stands on the sideline, and, and when we do something, we kind of look up at the conscience and say, what was it? Was it good or bad? And the conscience tells us it was good or bad. That's the job of the conscience. And how does it operate? It says, through their thoughts, either accusing or excusing. So all of a sudden, it's a thought that comes to us. Oh, that was not good. That was wrong. That was good. That's the thought. That's the interjection of the thoughts by the conscience. That's what it does. It's a thought that comes to my mind. It's a thought that comes to your mind that says that was good, that was bad. That's a conscience. That's what it's doing. Now, that's why the Bible speaks of a good conscience. In other words, if the conscience is there, making good calls, it's a good conscience. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes that to Timothy when he says, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and faith unfeigned. And he also told him in verse uh, 19 of 1 Timothy 1, holding faith, hold on to faith, Timothy, and a good conscience. In other words, do the things so that you have a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And as a matter of fact, Paul saw a good conscience as a state to live in. It's a place to be. And so that's why he told this council, he said, and Paul earnestly beholding the council, not the council, Paul went through a lot of counselors. <laughs> Poor Paul. Anyway, Paul, it says, earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So when the conscience that is spoken of is good, it means being living in a state where it's not accusing. And then there's the bad conscience. You know, that was the classic place of that is when the woman was taken in adultery and the Lord said, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Then they left from the eldest to the youngest. And why did they leave? It describes it in John 8, 9, where it says, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even the last, and Jesus left alone. 
So the word that describes the work of the conscience is a conviction. It's a convicting, you know, a convicting that makes the person drop his head in shame and embarrassment. It's exactly the picture we have here of Abraham in Genesis 20. He's got a bad conscience. His conscience is convicting him. He has nothing to say except for this lame excuse, which, as we said, he shouldn't have done that. And when he said that lame excuse, then what happened? Then he has to endure Abimelech's looks like you can't be serious. Anyway, so when the conscience is always making calls that it was evil in a person, and the Bible calls that an evil conscience. But the great thing about having an evil conscience is what it says about it in Hebrews 10.22, speaking of us, where it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We all have an evil conscience. We all have been where Abraham is. Maybe not about our wife, but in some way we've lied or done something where the conscience has convicted us, made us ashamed, made us embarrassed in front of God, in front of man. And we all find ourselves like that in, in the place where the conscience is described in Titus 1.15 with these words, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but their mind and conscience is defiled. It's made dirty. It's soiled. And we want so much, when that happens to us, as Abraham did in the case in Genesis 20, we want so much to return back, to get to that place that's described in Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. And we want to get to the place where it says in 1 Timothy 3, 9, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience, good conscience, pure conscience. Sin makes that defiled conscience. Then there's a choice. Either get cleansed, as it says, 1 John 1, 9, or stop listening to the conscience, in which the Bible describes that in 1 Timothy 4, 2, as a conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, when we find ourselves like Abraham, then we're praying, as Abraham did, as David did in Psalm 51, 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's why this verse in Hebrews 10, 22 is so important because it tells us that, we're to, that we can come having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what's the water, the pure water? That's the word that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us through the Bible, where he said in John 15, 3, now ye are clean through the word, but it doesn't stop there. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. See? Now, that's the cleansing word of the Lord. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. He cleansed us. He cleansed us with his word. He cleansed us with his blood. In Revelation 1, 5, where it says, unto him the Lord Jesus, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. See the connection? Loved us and washed us. He loved us and he washed us. If he hadn't washed us, he hadn't loved us. What is our greatest need? To be washed from our sins. Therefore, the great love of God was to wash us from our sins. In his own blood, the emphasis is. In his own blood. And that, in contrast with Hebrews 9, 12, Neither by the blood, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, which he entered into once the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And that's what he did for us. 
That's what he's going to do for Israel. That's what he's going to do for the Jewish people. That's the whole movement of Jeremiah 33. Because there he starts out with the I wills in Jeremiah 33.8. When God says, I will cleanse them. In other words, I'll wash them from all their iniquity and whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned, whereby they have transgressed against me. I will, God says, cleanse them. I will pardon them. That's the hope of Israel. That's the Hatikvah. Now, in verse 5, we can see that Abimelech now, he's pleading his cause with God, his case, rather, with God. And he says in verse 5, Said he not unto me that she is my sister? And she, even she herself, said he's my brother. So what Abimelech is saying to God is that he didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife, and he tells God that not only did Abraham tell me he was a sister, but Sarah did too. She did too. And so what he's really saying here is that, wait a minute, I'm not guilty. I was just misled. And it shows us that shows us several things. Well, one thing, it shows us how complicit Sarah was in obeying Abraham and even in lying. But Abimelech is just shocked to hear that Sarah is Abraham's wife. He had no idea. And it shows us something that he recognized it was a great sin. God told him he was going to die because of it. But he didn't even know it, that it was a great sin. But it was still a sin. Even though he didn't know it, it was still a sin. Even though Abimelech was ignorant that he had sinned, he still had sinned. It was a sin of ignorance. Sin is a sin, whether a person knows it or not. It's still a sin. It's a very interesting picture here because what we see is a picture of Abimelech who didn't have any knowledge of God and he sins in ignorance. And so what we see in verse 5 is Abimelech arguing to God that he didn't know. He talks about the integrity of his heart and the innocency of his hands. He's done this. He calls his hands innocence. And all of this conversation is going on. And you know, the amazing thing is, is this conversation is going on in the same dream. You know, it's like one night's dream. And in that dream, God responds back to him, notice in verse 6, and God said to him in a dream. So God's responding back to him in a dream, and his response shows us something very interesting about God. In the fact that God makes this pronouncement, you're a dead man, you're dying. And then he hears Abimelech's argument, and then he responds back to Abimelech. You know what it shows? It shows that God did not want to destroy Abimelech. He really didn't want to. Abimelech was lost in his sins. He was dying in his sins, literally. And God wanted to save Abimelech because this is who God is. When it says in Luke 9, 56, the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's life. The Son of Man did not come to destroy Abimelech's life, but to save them, but to save Abimelech. And so the Son of Man has come to seek and to save, Luke 19, 10, that which is lost. Seek and to save and so when you look at the whole context around John 3, 16, it reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might or should be saved. He that believeth him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation. Light is come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So what we have here in these verses 3 through 7 is light coming to Abimelech. 
This is God. This is light. And so first of all, in verse 3, the light says, you are dying. That's the light that says that. Behold, thou art a dead man. And no one can be saved unless they understand that they have sinned, as in all have sinned of Romans 3.23, and come short of the glory of God. And no one can be saved unless they understand that the consequences of their sin is death. As it says in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And no one can be saved unless they understand, verse 3, behold, thou art a dead man. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051.